Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, here we are, uh, Tone Duff number 12, unbelievable. And uh, we're here with a very special guest, uh, the amazing Steve McDonald, whose uh, resume reads like what uh, alternative rock and rock and roll is all about from step one. We'll get into all of that. Steve, say hello to uh, the world out there. Hello, world. And uh, sitting in just for a second before she runs off is uh, Evil E, my wife Elsa. Hello. Uh, and also, I think you had something to say. What, well, what was no, it? I mean, I wanted you to talk about the bands he's been in and the fact that you played at Disneyland, right? I've never played at Disneyland. I don't thought you played at Disneyland. I, didn't, I was going to say I didn't know that. That uh, well, now I'm sort of now I'm racking my memory banks. Have I played at Disney? No, I know I've seen you at Disneyland. I've been well, to Disneyland, he's a Disneyland many times. Addict. I've been a fan of the bands at Tomorrowland Terrace. Yeah, but you might be thinking of um, another young punk rocker. Um, um, what's the drummer? Josh, well, Josh Freeze. Josh Freeze is His definitely first played. Gig was he was in the Disneyland Tomorrowland oh, band Terrace. when he was like 13 or something? Okay, don't let the truth getting away of good stories. Well, yes, of course. You played at Disneyland. Right? Sure. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. The, one story you might be thinking of, there was, uh, I don't know, early on in our relationship, so maybe like 18, 19 years ago, it was one Super Bowl Sunday, it was raining, it was dark, we weren't interested in the game at all, and we're like, what are we going to do today? And Elsa goes, shit, let's go to Disneyland, there'll be no one there, and we <laughs> ran into you and Jeff. Uh, <laughs> so, you oh, know, yeah. kind of funny. So, yeah, you want to give his resume, though, real quick? Well, I mean, uh, it, we'll be getting into that all all through the hour, but right now, he's as just in current time, he's playing in The Melvins, uh, Off, with Keith Morris, and, of course, uh, his long-standing band from 30 years ago and more, well, almost 78, over 35 years. I think 78 almost was 30, our first 40 years. Good Lord. 78. Which 78. makes him sound like he's 70, but he was 11 at the time, and that's... Uh, <laughs> This, that, of course, is the uh, wonderful Red Cross. One of my favorite bands of all time. I have no qualms um, admitting yeah, that. Thank no, you. absolutely. And um, when I saw you with the Melvins, mm. uh, with Napalm Death. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, at the Troop. Yeah. So, basically, I was kind of up front, and then, like, the guys in front of me just pushed me up front, and I realized, I was like, wow, they're letting me, like, to the very front of the stage. And I realized... It's because the singer's crotch is in my face the entire show. <laughs> and he kicked me in the face. Wait, wait, are you talking about Napalm Death? Napalm. Barney. Yes. Well, you got, to, you got to the front of the pit for Napalm yeah, Death. So You're got, very got, brave. Got, You're a got, brave woman. Okay, I got kicked in the face. But here's the thing. I remember you and I being at, I think it was um, the, the end show of the cast and crew party for the Wild Boys or something? No, it was the Germs. It was a, no, ah. no, 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 not that one. No, Turbo Negro was playing. Oh, yeah, I remember Turbo at the yeah. knitting factory in the, yes, in the, in the lobby Negro. room, the big, the bar room. Oh, my God, that and was the worst show to deal with. <laughs> nobody cared about the band, and you turned to me, and you were just like, Let's mess this up. Yeah, yeah. And you and I just started slamming against each other. I think with Steve-O was the only one else interested. Oh, with Steve-O there? Yeah. yeah, so we were yeah, like, you became my mosh pit buddy. So then it was, yeah, the germs at uh, the Echo. And you and I were just slamming against each other. And I remember going <laughs> after the show 
or after the band ended, going back and seeing your beautiful wife standing with my husband, and she was just like, thank you. Because <laughs> she did not want to go in that pit with you. I don't go in the pit. I, well, I did go in the pit for the germs, but it was down, it wasn't at the Echo, it was down on Hollywood the Echo Boulevard. Yeah, so you've been my that mosh pit buddy. place or whatever it's called. And I appreciate that. Uh, well, I I appreciated having a buddy. Thank you. You're, you're, you're probably the... The only mosh pit buddy I've ever had. I feel like uh, you usually go solo. Well, uh, yeah, or that I that I I was a late um, bloomer in the mosh pit, and that that sort of those were some rare moments for me. Even though I'm considered some, although one of my early memories is I did stage dive for the weirdos once okay, at the Whiskey a Go Go as a child, but in general. I think I, um, I don't know, I preferred being on stage. But um, in my 30s, I thought, it's time to get rowdy. And and I remember, th- these are moments I remember. It was I with you. What was the band yeah, I that felt caused safe that doing it with you, I think. I didn't. <laughs> what was the band that caused you to, to, to have that leap of faith? What do you mean? Like when you were in the 30s, like, oh, I got to get right. Oh, well, Turbo Negro and, and Elsa. Turbo Negro and, El- and the Germ Show, that was also, you know, so... And so that was... Tor- your, those, those are the few times I've been in the... Those are the few times I've been in the... See what a troublemaker you are, Elsa? I love it. God damn. No, I, I, think I will that, go in the pit with you anytime. Okay. That's cool. You're great. Let's do it. So I sit back I'll do by it the again. Bar. I'm, yeah, he'll I'm sit by the and hold I, don't, I don't need to get in the. Uh, I don't need to get. I'll get kicked in the face by the singer of Napalm Death. No problem. <laughs> You're much braver than I am. I feel like, um, you know, those days are behind me now again. But now they can come back around. Yeah. Yeah. If I hang out with you more. That's well, good. I assume you're seeing the pit pretty. You know, often with you between uh, off for sure. Yeah, I guess I see and it from the, the Melvins. Others. Does it happen much? Yeah, they get some pit action. They get some pit action. Melvins are kind of slow. You got to yeah. get that kind of grinding well, pit going. They do some. They you get, get some, you go uh, gets going tempo. Yeah. In the you know, I was around when um, the pit got really violent in the early. Eight, you remember yes. some of that stuff, oh, and so like I, I was really in the pit. I was turned off Slayer by you know in El Paso. <laughs> Well, you got into the metal pits, which are a little different. In the 80s, yeah. I mean, to the point, and and, in El Paso, you know, half the crowd actually swam there. So it was, there was an odor from the Rio Grande. Uh And nobody really cared how much they were going to destroy you. So, um, but I had some really... Wait, so, okay, so so you were in the pit in El Paso growing uh, up? Yeah, uh, and I had That's how you came up? and uh, Wow, wow. And I only did it with with, um, Frank Gonzalez, like, watching my back. Because I'm like, if Frank's watching my back, then I'm like totally i'm totally cool but yeah it was i was the only woman in the pit i bet well i mean that's but it was fun no they literally set fires on the uh you know on the concert floor because it was just all concrete and then yeah it was a disaster it was fun though anyway i'm going to work and i will let you talk about your project so good Good to to see see you you. take care All right, we're going to roll into this here. Um, first off, I know uh, you're, you've got everybody coming up going on tour, and the most amazing thing is you're doing shows with Melvin's, Off, Red Cross, all on the same bill. That's, That's true. That's just two shows, right? Or is there uh, more? We added, uh, oh yeah, we two, yeah, there's two, <clears throat> there's two shows. We're playing um, 
playing at the observatory in Santa Ana, all three bands. And then on new, that's on the 28th of December, I think. And then on the, th- on then on new year's Eve, we're doing Pappy and Harriet's, which will be nuts. Yeah. in pioneer town. But then, but in that same week I'm doing, um, one show in San Diego with Red Cross and Melvins. And then the next night I'm playing just off. So off didn't play one of those shows, whatever, but in San Diego. Was that just a scheduling thing? Yeah, it was kind of a scheduling thing. We thought that because Off is about to do a tour right now in uh, mid-November. And originally, Off was going to play San Diego as part of that run. So when that tour, when this is all just boring scheduling. No, I get you. But when that got booked, when the the San Diego date got booked for Melvin's and Red Cross, we thought Off had already had a San Diego date. So Who came up with the idea for this uh, Steve McDonald trifecta? Um, Well, I mean... It probably depends on who you talk to. Uh, I mean, ultimately, everything is always Buzz Osborne's master plan, but um, at least in these realms, um, when it when it involves him, um, and I mean that in a good way. Um, but uh, but the origins, from my perspective, of at least New Year's Eve is some. I have some lovely friends uh, from uh, London that are getting married. And uh, they're having two weddings, one in London and one in Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree on the th- and the second is on the 30th of December, and um, they invited me to come. And I and I thought, well, that's great. Well, I should see if Red Cross can play New Year's Eve at Pappy and Harriet's, and we can just kind of make it a party for your for your wedding as well. And they're longtime Red Cross fans. Yeah, my friend Clemency Penn, who was like a teenager that used to follow us. Um, at any rate, so I just told the Melvins, um, just so you know now, I'm booked on these dates. And then Buzz was like, well, I want to play too. And then and then when Off found out that we were playing, then they wanted to play too. So it's great. It's great for me. I love it. You know, I, I just have to, um, it's a good thing. I'm, I've got a little bit of a cold right now, so I'm going to get I'm going to get that over with now. And uh, and I probably, oh you'll be fine by then. I mean, yeah, well no, of course I think, but I I, was, I should take a step further. I probably should start like I'm actually your neighborhood's inspiring me. I should start um, exercising more, maybe hiking, get a little cardiovascular. Never hurts. Activity going that will help me for the shows. Yeah, the three sets. Well, you're in Malibu. There must be tons of great places to to hike. I don't live in Malibu. I thought you did. No, I live in Hollywood. I live not far from you. Oh. My brother's in Malibu a lot. I thought you guys both lived out there. Neither of us do. We both live on the east on the east side of Hollywood. Los Feliz. No one lives in Malibu anymore. I was unaware of that. Ever. Oh, I thought you both did for quite some time. <laughs> Is that just some... Ah, uh, well, we had a band called Z Malibu Kids. I thought that, that was the origin of the name. No, the uh, origins of Z Malibu Kids. Now we're really jumping around, and I'll just... Do it quickly. Okay, do you mind if I jump around? Okay, so the Malibu Kids is a side project that I have with my older brother Jeff from Red Cross. And uh, it's funny, I would, at 49, I would still say something like my older brother. But um, uh, Jeff and I had an experience. We had a side project in the early 2000s called the Malibu Kids. And it's just kind of this power pop recording project. And it's one album only, and it's kind of a rarity. And I, I really. I love the record, but um, the origins of the name from us is—it's a weird name, and um, I don't know. It sounds like the Bugaloos or something, but um, it comes from um, a trip that we took. This is a story I love to tell. 
I don't know why I tell it all the time, and it, there's no big punchline other than um, when we were in the late '80s, we we had never been to Europe before, and Jeff was dating a, a German girl for a brief period. I do recall that. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you know these twins, P- Petra and Iris? I they, think they used so. to hang out in Hollywood. They were friends with uh, the celebrity skin guys. Okay. Anyway, so uh, so Petra or Petra. Um, Invited Jeff to come, um, you know, visit in Berlin where she lived for a week. And Jeff said, well, can I bring my brother? Um, neither of us had traveled abroad before, not even England. And um, so we were both, I think Jeff wanted the travel companion in case, whatever. And, uh, and, and this is 88. So this is before the wall came down. So this is when the old Berlin. And we get there and um, it was winter time. Yeah, granted, we're not from Malibu, but we're from Southern California. So we were there in December, Berlin in December, and Petra, Petra, her roommate is Blixa Bargeld from Einsters and Neubauten. I remember this. Yeah, and I said, and I knew nothing about Einsters and Neubauten, but um, and I and at the time I knew very little about Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, although I had seen them once open for the Cramps at the uh, in in uh, Pasadena. Early, early on in their career, and um, we were so didn't understand what they were doing that we were on the balcony heckling them, yelling out Black Oak, Arkansas song <laughs> titles. We we're like Jim Dan to the rescue! Woo! Uh, that's how whatever how up to speed we were not, I guess, or uh, whatever it is. And, uh, but that's what our perspective was. So that was like six years earlier than this moment, or eight years earlier than this moment. And uh, so I'm staying. <clears throat> so I'm. The younger brother staying at my brother's girlfriend. He's, you know, of course, sharing her room. And uh, so I'm on the couch. I'm in the common space in the house. And then there's her roommate, Blixa. And I've never been to Europe. I've never dealt with that kind of jet lag. Uh, you know, and this is when the wall was still up. So it really was a very different Berlin. I don't know if you've, if, if, I don't know if, have you been to Berlin before? Yes. Have you been before and after? Uh, I was there just I think literally months after the wall came down. It was uh, sure. 92. So it's a similar vibe, probably. But um, you know, it just is what. I mean, maybe it was also I wasn't very worldly, but it just there was not a lot of. Um, if you didn't speak in, if you didn't speak German, it was hard to get around, and um, and that's all different now. I think it's really different now, and like, but I mean, and not, the, and I was also very ashamed of the fact that I didn't speak any German. I couldn't offer any. You know, I felt like, oh, I'm like a. You know, arrogant American and all that crap. And so, um, but at any rate, um, I just felt like a real hick. And um, and I remember the very first morning waking up to Nick Cave music blasting really, really loud through this really beautiful like West German stereo system. And uh, I was like, oh, what is oh, you know, freaked out. Oh. And then uh, and, you know, and um, I roll out of bed, and there's this guy in brown leather pants, and uh, you know. Now I know it as sort of an iconic sort of punky haircut, and it's this guy Blixa Bargell, and um, he was a you know a really like he's like a national hero there now. And I remember we went to you know to Petra. It's like what's what's going on? What what is this at? You know, I mean it was really loud, and uh, she and we you know what, uh, what what's he doing? Is he is does he always do that? No, I think he's playing. That is his, his music. I, I think he's playing that for you. 
which was it felt like a lot of pressure to me like what do i do do i tap my toe what the fuck am i supposed to do he wants my he wants my approval or I, what the fuck what was it was it nick cave's new stuff yeah i think time? it was nick cave music and as you know actually in retrospect it sounded great it was great stuff you know it's a you know he kind of taught me a lot about like the connection between like you know lee hazelwood music and nancy sinatra and punk rock you know i didn't really understand that quite yet and um the 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 the, the connection between using a washing machine as an instrument and 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 holding nancy sinatra in high esteem um i remember being all the way in germany going like what the fuck these people are crazy what the hell we had an odd trip i remember feeling like i was a very unwanted house guest and um, early in the trip, Blixa asked me, so how long are you staying? <laughs> you know, because I'm in the common space. I'm in the living room. Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, about a week. He's like, looks, looks at me. Not much expression. Is, huh. So it was like that kind Germans of Germans are not really known for their sense of humor or... Uh, yeah. You gotta, it's something you got to kind of adjust to. It's well, in there. But I mean, I think, had we been in Bavaria, we'd have, we would have Bavaria, we'd have, we'd have gotten some southern hospitality. But, uh, you know, he just he was not... He just was not charmed by our southern California... Probably not. ...thing. And, uh, but so while we were there, we, but we got very into their sort of culture, although we felt like very isolated from it. We were obsessed with it. And so for many years, we would talk about this trip and we would say like how weird, like the weird stuff that they would like pull out of our culture and hold in high esteem. And we had this high concept about like, they would love this, you know, what if there was a band, you know, like maybe like a band from like Malibu and and the MVP. <laughs> so, hey, so that's like, so that's how it got going. Like, yes, oh, the Malibu kids are coming next week and, you know, Blix is very excited and, you know, so that's... And that was early 2000s. That was like... Two, oh, no. That trip was 1988. No, no, no. When you, when you guys did the records. By 1988. Yeah, the trip happened in 1988. Early 2000s, we were still trying to process what had happened to us. And and so we came up with concepts but like... Since you're there, one Zuma thing I didn't kids. know about... I, was, I popped uh, a look at you this morning on Band to Band. Do you know that website? Mm-mm. Oh, it's the best. Bandtoband.com. I recommend it for anybody, but it uh, it's like the ultimate uh, Kevin Bacon type thing. You type in any band, find the then the next band, everybody connects. Doesn't matter who it is, everyone yeah. connects. It's hilarious. But I, uh, you popped up on something, and I tracked you down. There was actually a Stephen McDonald band around that time. Sure. Yes, yeah, true. Which I didn't know about. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I had I, we t- we probably played a handful of shows. We put out we put out an EP. Uh, ourselves uh, and uh, yeah, I took I took you know I took a a, a a stab at being a front guy for a brief period there. Like Buzz Osborne would say, stand-up singer. So there was a period there in the late '90s where Red Cross called it a day for a while. We went on like indefinite hiatus. I was actually going to ask that because I, I wasn't aware that you guys had actually. Decide, okay, we're done for a bit. Yeah. It was, was it, and was it at that time, like, it's a bit or we're done? It was open-ended. And, I, you know, I think if you're going to really do that, you kind of have to um, allow yourself the freedom to let it be done, if it's, if it's going to be done. And uh, at least for me, that's what I needed. You know, the thing about Red Cross is that, um, uh, as, you know, as grateful as I am to have, have had it, um, especially now at this point in my life, um, you know, just giving me so much, um, so much focus and um, just, you know, great, 
you know, music is every, everything, everything that I really have that is dear to me in my life is directly a result of being involved in music. So then that's Red Cross. So, um, but by 1998, I had been doing Red Cross for 20 years. And I was only 31 years old. And I was 20 years into a career that I, a professional life that I had made my uh, adult decision about at the age of 11. And so I think in my early 30s, I thought, whoa, you know, like, uh, maybe I should rethink uh, that decision and not take it so literally and see if there's um, other ways to be involved and still in music. I knew music was my passion, but I wanted to take a break and see if there was maybe if I wanted to play in someone else's band, maybe I want to be producing records, maybe working somewhere in the business or something. What was the uh, first record you ever took responsibility on as, you know, I'm the producer, you're just you? Well, I did, um, my friend Roddy Bottom from Faith No More mm -hmm. and his other band, Imperial Teen, were, actually, they were, it was very flattering and nice and encouraging while Red Cross were still in their first original run. And in, in the, around 95, Roddy asked me if I would produce um, a record for his band, Imperial Teen. Um, and I think he just thought, I mean, with no prior production credits. And they were on Slash Records. They actually had a real record deal. And I think he just thought that I was, maybe he was rooting for the kid brother, underdog. That'd be a neat thing to do. Had you had any leanings toward that and like you know the kind of the technical end of dealing with which a lot of musicians are kind of like not dr drawn to particularly i was definitely the guy in the studio that would be asking the engineer lots of questions okay you know i was interested in all the buttons but like not but but um but i didn't really have much follow-through about the technical side of my interest my interest in terms of technical stuff but uh but I remember asking an engineer once, like, what's the most important thing you need to know about all of this stuff? And I'm, like, pointing at the console. And this is back in the days when, you know, everybody, sure. you're in, you know, it was probably some huge 32-channel Trident board. And um, I remember he told me, signal flow. That was the thing he said, signal flow. That was the one thing he thought was the most important. But um, And that stuck with me. And that's like, you know, whatever, 1982 or something. And... Uh, I think he's a bit of a champion of the underdog, and maybe he thought of me as like the kid brother underdog. But maybe also he thought you had the right sensibility for what he was getting sure. into. Sure, there's probably all these other great qualities that I'm not able to see. You know, and a yeah. lot, that's a, that was a lot different than Faith No More, which is what he was associated sure, with. Sure, sure. And so this is his first time, and he was still in Faith No More at the time before they took an inde inde right. indefinite hiatus. And uh, so that we did a record in '95, and that was and that was kind of made a big splash on the indie level. And, um, and it was a very scary experience because I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing. Yeah, you had an engineer with you, I would We assume. did, we did. But there were times when, uh, but yeah, but it was one of the first times I learned like, oh, you know, also, uh, if I'm really going to take this job seriously, for me, I probably do need to take on some technical training because um, there's also a classic rub there can be between the the. Producer, producer and, the and the engineer, you yep. know the the classic producer and and the you know in the George Martin sense, you know, and you have to prove yourself to earn that person's res the engineer's respect. Typically, I think, um, and I probably didn't have the skills at that moment to necessarily prove myself. <laughs> I evidently didn't because I remember feeling very dismissed by our engineer, and um, that and I'm very 
I tune into these things. So, and, and since then, I have taken lots of interest in the technical side too, so that I can do both. So that I can be the help, help with the creative side of them making the record, help the, um, support the artist's vision creatively, and then also I can, um, you know, turn the knobs too. And, 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 and as you know, in this day and age, you kind of have, you know, these budgets aren't very big, so the yeah. more the more the more hats you feel comfortable wearing, sure. the the better. Learning process is weird. I there was some guy that a friend of mine that was in one of the punk bands I knew was also in this goth band, and uh, leader of the band had a bunch of money. He had a studio up in uh, up in the hills, and he was making this record that I guess they kept making over and over, and it was never what they wanted. So they hired me to mix it. And it was only like, I don't, wasn't that many songs. And I was up there and he had, they had an in-house, this guy had bread. They had an in-house guy that just ran the studio and was the engineer. So I yeah. basically was just asking him to do stuff. And I asked him, I forget what it even was. Like, hey, can you make it, can make the delay longer or something? Just something really stupid. He goes, yeah, there it is. Go ahead. So it was one of those things like, you do it. You know what you want. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm not exactly sure how this gadget works. Oh, I got it. You know. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, they're... You, you've definitely got to. You can't just be ordering someone around. You've yeah. got to know what you're talking about. They get, yeah, they get yeah, te- definitely. They get testy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, there's it's a uh, there's a lot of psychology involved yeah. in making records. Yes, and, there is. You know, I mean, I can imagine it would be really frustrating to have come up through um, a studio system and to have years, years, years under your belt, and then to watch um, this kid who's just been in a few bands, suddenly everybody in the studio is looking to him for um, decisions, and and he clearly does, he's over his head on a technical level. You know, I could, I could imagine that would be like frustrating. But know? then, uh, you know, to play devil's advocate, I mean, a lot of people that kind of get into production that way, uh, the things they may have going for them is they have played in bands. They know how arrangements work. They know how band politics work. Yeah. They know how to get a song to be kind of tighter and yeah. you know more to the point. So there's uh, there's other things besides just doing the technical stuff. I, I agree. I agree. Maybe he was taking those things into account, and maybe I failed on all of those counts. You know, I didn't impress. So I don't know. I mean, I think that it's hard to be a good producer. It takes a long time. It takes practice like anything else. It takes practice, else. yeah. There's a lots of skills. And, you know, and, and I think that there are many in what is a producer. You know, it, 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 for me, it's like, um, uh, you know, every environment is going to have different needs. And so, uh, like, you know, every if it's a band or if it's a solo artist, it's going to require... Um, filling in different kinds of gaps so it's not always the same thing uh the same set of skills necessarily uh i think i'm getting better at it you know i'm I'm getting uh broader at it where i feel like i can handle different environments better so at what point did you set up your own studio um well i've been trying to do it for years but it's really been i've done it a couple of times i've had enough gear to kind of cobble together enough stuff to like you know record some drums and then do some overdubs um i've had an environment to do that for about 10 years but then at some point i did it once i set it up and it didn't sound good and i lost and i just lost confidence in it and i sort of let it fall to the side and then um joined off and um, i had a rehearsal space and off kind of moved into my rehearsal space and then the spaces kind of became filled with off merch and um but then about three years ago, Off decided they wanted to record a record in our space. 
and um were you, had you produced the ones before that elsewhere? Well, I had, yeah. I well, I was. I have a credit. I have. A, I have an engineering credit as Dimitri has got the production credit, and he's like the co-songwriter with Keith. Um, and we had done two records at um, a studio in uh, Eagle Rock called King Size, oh, which is like a place. proper good place. Yeah, it's got a really nice Neve console. Um, you would never know from listening to our records that <laughs> we recorded through a beautiful console, but that's probably um, goes back to my, uh, you know, still kind of sound rough. It's it's yeah, you know, it's far to the sound, and yeah. it was my mixing skills at the time. But um, but hang on, I'm kind of jumping all around. I did have a home mixing room, kind of overdub overdubbing room. Anna and I have had that at our house since um, about 2001. We've had we've always had like a, a room not unlike not this, unlike this uh, not unlike so, this and that's also Since where you would have done the, uh, the red blood cells thing. Sure, I did that there. That's when we did the first we did uh, the third Imperial Teen record. Most of the overdubs there, overdubs and mixing there, a record called On, um, and you know, and I would just do little projects here and there. But it's really been in the last, since Off's last album, which was in 2014, we made a record at my rehearsal space, which I've now, I set it up for, to record that record. And since then, I got it back into my blood. Like, I want to record drums. I want to go for this with the gear I have, rather than like getting obsessed with the gear I don't have. It's like, no, let's learn how to make this gear sound really good. Are as best as it can sound, and I don't see why not. Right nowadays, with all the stuff that's available, yeah, computer-wise, I, mean, I think it's just been really hard knowing for years, like knowing like um, uh, how much of this is like being a good mixer, and how much of this is like getting it on disc or tape or whatever correctly. You know, uh, you know what, what's the ratio here, and do I have enough stuff to get that first stage? You know, do I have enough decent gear to get it onto disc or onto tape in a way that can be mixed in a way that's going to sound exciting to me and the artist? Right. You know, so it's been hard to figure that out. But I feel only recently, really. I mean, I'm I'm sure people always feel that way that they never totally have it wired. But recently, I'm like now I'm feel like I'm excited about the mixes and sounds. Um, really inspiring i'm excited about it's not doesn't just fill me with fear if it, the, i thought of having yeah, it's sessions nice coming control out that it's yours and you don't have to go somewhere else or depend on anybody else that's amazing it's yeah. a responsibility too but you know yeah. it's nice to have it yeah i mean when it's my own stuff i'm super excited with my bands like i want i want red cross and and off to record immediately and you know it's a but and Melvin's, I want to record them too if they ever want to come over to our space. But the, you know, but yeah, recording other bands, you know, the idea of like, yeah, you should hire me and you should pay me for this. Right. Like, I feel confident about this. You know. That's... Did you do the side eyes uh, split single there? I did. Yeah. Okay. That that sounds great. I cool. think. Cool. Th thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think. I, yeah, we. You know, at 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 the very least. Um, I feel confident that those records can sound as exciting or can sound as um, whatever, pristine or professional as the punk records that I loved growing up, you know, like the really great Danger House records or something. Like to me, I can at least like feel confident if that's what you like, I could probably achieve that, you know. Sure. If we're going to try to get, you know, if we're going to try to compete with the Foo Fighters or something like that, I don't know. Well, let's, let's, let's break this down and see what we can actually 
chew on before we bite it off. But right. you know. So uh, speaking of that split, did you guys put that out yourselves? No, that came out um, that uh, uh, in the red records. Oh, that's My right. friend Larry Hardy put that. And you're out. doing. I think you're doing something upcoming for them. Uh, well, for in the red. Well, the side eyes have an album that um, we finished. But um, but you're talking about that first thing you did you hear? No, that? I you just I just thought I read something that you had projects coming up within the red and well, burger. Well, burger, yeah, yeah. I probably mentioned that somewhere online. I had uh, I'm working on a record with a band called Vag V A J J. It's their initials. It's three girls. Viva Alexia. Works out well. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Vag. That record is for Burger, and then um, the Side Eyes record's gonna come out on. Um, on in the red. Um, so you're really enjoying producing. Do you how yeah. how is that weighing in at, at this point in your life with you know being the guy on stage and in the band? Uh, what do you mean? How is it weighing in? Like how, I mean, how like, do I divide my time? Well, no, not just not just from a pragmatic sense. What do you get the most fulfillment from at this point? Uh, it's all a balancing act, you know. There's pros. It's like everything. There's 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 pros and cons to everything. And what I'm finding is that um, I, I I like just being I like it's part of the whole picture for me and that's what is uh that that's what's really inspiring for me to try to like get organized about my calendar and make it all work so it doesn't just feel stressful to try to make right. it happen that uh because it is really exciting because you know if going on tour with the melvins we just did a, like a hundred dates this year and um had some amazing shows. It was really, really fun and neat. Is that um, the most you've toured in a long time? Yes, we just did an eight-week tour, um, eight weeks in a row, and, and um, and I learned a lot from them. Um, but you know, there's also the downside is that I'm away from my family, and sometimes I'm really exhausted, and uh, so. But it's but I also am very grateful that it's something I know how to do, and I'm being valued for it. So, and I I, I know at this point in my life to be grateful that that is happening something i feel confident about that i'm being valued for sure um so there's that but you know but then there's the con of like you know it can be exhausting and you're far away from your family um so and i'm so by the time i get home i'm really ready to jump into my studio and and start working with either my own stuff or or you know a, a young band and help them um you know, uh, get their ideas across in a way that um, they're excited about the the results. And when you say your own stuff, are you, are you working on some solo music again, or is stuff you're gearing back towards Red Cross? Or well, or I mean, I'm just kind of now getting to this place where I want to try. Uh, I'm trying to be more proactive about my writing, and and be, mostly because um, no, I'm not thinking about solo stuff. But th there's just there's too many. Um, um, potential. I mean, if any, if everything I write gets rejected by one of the three bands, then I might have to look at it, being like, I have to decide how much I love it or not. Sure. You know, hopefully I love it and love it, and then I would want to make it. But I would hopefully one of my bands will will raise their hands for it. You know, I kind of think so far um, the stuff that I've written, I've been like sort of thing like this would be good for Red Cross. This would be good for Off. Hopefully, you know. And so far, that's kind of. I've been on the Red mark. Cross gearing up to do something? Yeah, my brother's written like he's got a handful of songs and um and you know, we're back in the rehearsal studio getting ready for these shows coming up at the end of the year. And you know, more than anything, like being on tour with the Melvins have really inspired me. I realize they're a very unique band. Um, but they've 
so I don't expect that, you know, oh, just because they're able to do this, I can do this. But it has, if you talk to Buzz, you would tell me, you can definitely, you know, have this, you know, which, and what I think he has is, um, he has a, a great little cottage industry that works for him, and it's playing and it's doing his own band, and he gets to decide how many shows he wants to play a year, and he gets to decide when he's home, um, when he wants to be recording, and when he wants to just go play golf, and it's all his own stuff, and it's like, uh, you know, and they have a very fo- they have a very lo- loyal following. It's a very uh, unique situation, but they also have handled themselves in a very unique way. And they've uh, they've done things that um, every band or I've been in before didn't think to do, you know. Such as what? Well, you know, I, they just they just really have never stopped, and they well, that's ha- true. And they have never really let discouraging stuff get them too down, you know. I think they just have had a unique way of of knowing what to sweat and what not to sweat. Do you think that's because of the team of the two of them primarily sort of backing each other up? Well, this happened, but we'll do this and who cares? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that those two have, yeah, they're very... uh, they're a good support system for each for each other, but they also have a. They also probably have a very unique way of seeing things too, and it, they they just happen to share in common, you know. But I just watch them, you know, stuff that would have you know stuff that would have stressed me out. They don't sweat. So I mean, I'm sure they had their lean years, you know. Of course. Where they just have like kind of like kept their head down and just whatever, not worried about it, did something else within their band. And they're not afraid of reinventing their band. They're not afraid of totally doing something different, doing something that people don't expect. Um, You know, at this point, the Melvins are, uh, I call them polygamist, rock and roll polygamist. Right, right. Like, they don't, uh, you know, they they don't really settle down, you know, Uh, I make a joke because all the different bass players they've had. Like their last record is called Bases sure. Loaded, and there's six bass players. Yeah. I'm I'm one of them, and I talk about all the other bass players as like my sister wives. And I'm out on, I'm out on the road with the boys right now. <laughs> the other bass players are home with the babies, but uh, yeah, it's a temporary thing. I mean, I don't know, but um, but I just have seen uh, I've been inspired by it. Like fuck yeah, you know, because I also think that. I never didn't really have any models for this growing up, and they didn't seem to need them. I, I just think that when I was growing up, I all the dudes that had you know a generation or two above me, most of them, you know, I'd still see them at the the rock clubs out down at Raji's or whatever. Most of them were pretty fucking down and out, and um, probably most of them had drug and alcohol problems. When the ones that were still hanging around. And I thought that was my model of like that's if you don't like go off into the stratospheres of success, then that's the option. And I remember thinking like, I don't want that, you know, not really knowing how the other one, you know. And then it was also intersecting with L.A. at a weird time. Like I was in my early 20s in the late 80s when suddenly like there was this big industry like explosion in Los Angeles mm-hmm. where suddenly it was like, you know, a few people were sort of like crossing over and making it big and uh well you guys weren't too far after that right when you signed to atlantic we saw we kind of kind of were er, yeah we, we were before the grunge explosion and just sort of just, we signed to atlantic just after the sort of like hair metal thing had kind of taken off for a few bands 
we never really fit in with either of those no. groups. We did our own thing, but we also could share bills with those bands. But, you know, but just the idea of like growing up in this environment and sort of being so in, immersed in the culture, having management, management that, uh, you know, bless them, whatever. But uh, the culture, the music culture, the business culture is sort of like, you don't aim to have a decent middle class income in the, in the music no, business. Not. You don't. Because that's no good for the people above you. They're not going to make any money. They're not going to make any money. Even though it'd be okay for you. You need need to be able to become like ridiculous. You need to become like a Beatle. And I grew up loving the Beatles, so I didn't have any problem with that. You know, I didn't necessarily need to be famous. Or maybe I, who knows what the 20-year-old Steve thought. But, you know, I think all I really ever wanted was to play music and have security. You know, and... um, so it's been really enlightening for me to see it like much later that, um, you know, actually underground music, there actually is that if you're willing to wear lots of hats and, um, and have some confidence and not let yourself get too veered off track by the ups and downs. Yeah. And other other people's expectations. I think both Melvin's and Red Cross have managed to do that. And also... I think both bands are kind of seen by their fans as like, I mean, they're, they're one-of-a-kind bands. There's not really, there's, well, if you're tired of Red Cross, you can always go like blah, 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 because there really isn't, that, that band doesn't exist. And it's sort of the same thing for the Melvins. They're very unique bands that stand alone. And so I think you, you've been able to, to sink into like an independent you know, label existence and make it work and everybody kind of self-produces and... Yeah, it had to be very DIY and all that stuff, you know. But I mean, I'm still, you know, it's still, you know, I got to hustle and I have to have lots of of confidence about it and like, or just whatever. I need to, you know, it's it's not always... like how next year is going to unfold, I'm not exactly sure. And that's anxiety producing. That's anxiety producing, you know. But... um, but it, I'm also really excited right now, and I think I got I got a big hit off of hanging out with Buzz and Dale and watching you know the fruits of their work hard labor. Sure. You know they have they have a nice they have a nice as I don't know if I'm using the word right, but they have a really nice cottage industry. No, I think built. the thing that makes sense. Uh, you know, rolling back to the early '90s, both you and the Melvins, Red Cross and the Melvins signed to Atlantic. Yeah. And then if I'm if I was looking at it right, you guys then went to Polygram and Universal, like album after album? How did that work? Well, so we got signed to Atlantic. Um, well, one thing about our Atlantic, the difference between us and the Melvins, the Melvins got signed to Atlantic sort of after the grunge thing sure, happened. because they were the grandpas of it. And and we got signed to Atlantic um, in around 88, 89. So like um, right during that sort of post-Guns N' Roses or taking off thing and... Uh, we just happened to be the the band in LA that could draw about a thousand people at that moment, and it was our turn, <clears throat> or it was that A and R guys' turn to be able to sign something that that they could check off all the you know criteria. Right. But uh, I don't know that he was necessarily a huge Red Cross fan or like. Oh really? I mean, he's a fine guy, but I mean, it was just like when I think it wasn't like. When I look back at that deal, it wasn't like, okay, you know, this is fine and dandy right now, but how are we going to work when we're really in the, uh, when we're in the, the trenches together and things aren't necessarily going our way, you know? 
And uh, well, isn't that the weird thing about a major label, anyways? Like it's just so easy to grab another one. And let I guess when well, it was really, I mean, because for us it was extremely cliche. I mean, we were on and off the label in about a year's time, or maybe less than a year. Um, so we were on Atlantic. We put out we put out a record. It's called Third Eye, which might might have been a curveball also for our fans because my brother decided like his way of interacting with mainstream culture was to get heavily heavily into bubblegum music from the 60s and the early 70s it's like i want to go hyper bubblegum and uh you know and whatever it, it didn't uh, i will go on record as saying it's my favorite red cross uh, well thank you i mean i love that record thank you that's well, that's cool i mean i think that um, yeah, it's probably not yours well for me it was just like it was a weird time you know because it, it confused a lot of people and um we also had a difficult time making the record like our drummer left the band in the middle of making the record we had a very um uh you know our relationship with our in, with our producer was um not an easy one and so and that was tommy from the ramones right no that was on neurotica the record oh before. that's right who produced third so, eye a guy named michael blum and he would just we, 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 i don't know why we chose him we chose him for the wrong reasons we chose him my brother had told me many years later that he wanted to work because we they, they just kind of had us do interviews with a bunch of guys that it was you know that were producers at the time they would you know and uh like this guy had worked with the replacements this guy has worked with the ramones this guy has done this and that this guy has engineered madonna records and so um my brother said my brother liked him the guy who had engineered madonna records he told me later because he seemed like the most passive at the, during the so you guys could control the judges said, well he will know he'll he'll know how to control those knobs and we'll tell him what to do but we didn't know until we got in the studio that he was incredibly passive aggressive and oh. that he, and that he would just sulk he was like the intense sulker if if he wasn't getting his way and it just was you know and so and he had a very different image of what he wanted his production the record to sound like if his production credit with you know with a record with his credit sure. on it so you know and so it was it was just a it was a difficult time and then in the middle of it our drummer who was really really talented and we had been playing with for a couple of years we felt great about playing with him he decided to leave the band and while you were recording while we were recording i remember thinking like fuck you know how do we how, well, i mean that's crazy because how, how are we going to go out and support this record now this guy is playing some of the fanciest shit in the world and who was that roy no his name is victor and we're oh, yeah, friends yeah, with yeah, him yeah. now of course victor victor and Drizzo, who has now of course gone on to be like a well um regarded um musician and does a lot of session work he's a really gifted musician yeah, yeah. you know i found him and you played together again with beck with him right no he played in beck at a different time than i did um i played with beck in 2003 on the sea change tour and he was in i think he played with beck around the time of um the second beck album or that second uh mold um, what was that record called um uh, midnight vultures yeah, okay uh but whatever we're instagram friends it's 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 that that that's water far longer sure. to the bridge uh you know, he had his reasons at the time, but it, I felt we felt very high and dry. So at the time, and I remember like, so when we went out to promote that record, I felt like we were limping at a time when we needed to be at our strongest. Um, we really, I did not feel like we were confidently um, representing who we were promoting that record. Um, and that was very frustrating for me because we had spent a, up at that point um, 10 years sort of honing our, our thing as a live band. And um, it was, you know, 
So whatever. I said, when I think about that time, it was a stressful time. It's not that I disliked the record as much. It's just that it was a very stressful time. And um, so anyways, but going back to... Um, you just asked how did that thing work so with Atlantic. So then how did you flip over to the next so label? So then we were off that label, and then um, they, 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 they gave us, they threw it against the wall, it didn't stick. So then, and then the one thing that was a real bummer for a young band is that now, in America at least, the American industry had viewed it as like, oh, well, they got their shot, it didn't happen. So they, we had a stigma. And we took a moment, we got off tour after Third Eye, we regrouped, got um, a new guitar player. Robert wanted to leave the band, and it was time for us to split. Um, we got a new guitar player. We got a great drummer that was the right drummer for us, and we added a keyboard player, a girl named Jerry Finelli, and uh, we kind of reinvented ourselves as this um, five-piece band, and I loved it. I was really confident about it, but in terms of the business, the industry side, as where we had been like a very vibey, kind of buzzy band around 1989, around 1991, we were kind of dead in the water here. And um, so we had to go to the UK, and then we got some opportunities to go to the UK. And Teenage Fan Club brought us out right when they had um, their breakthrough record, um, uh, uh, bandwagon esque, right? Okay, and they were starting, yeah, and, and bandwagon esque, and they were starting to play theaters over in the UK, and they were on Creation Records and the label that later would spawn Oasis and Alan McGee and uh, Alan McGee's label, and um, and whatever, they, it was great. They took us out on our first tour of the UK, and at the end of the tour, we did our own show in London, and we got a deal. And, so you uh, signed with the European side. We signed with an English label that was like oh. a small label that was a subsidiary of Polygram. So then we got re. So then we made a record there called. We made a record here, but for them in the UK called Phase Shifter. The Polygram labels here in the America were like Mercury and Island. Right, and, right. And and so Mercury um, raised their hand that they were interested to put out the record. So we were kind of handled in America as like a foreign territory act. Um, Interesting. During the 90s, I didn't know that. During the 90s. We made two records in that environment. Yeah, it was weird. It's like we had these promotions. We were we were lumped in with bands like James and um, Catherine Wheel, like um, bands, other bands that I think on Mercury that were um, British bands that were being imported mm -hmm. um, from like Polygram labels. And uh you know, whatever. It just and it was just and it was an unfortunate time. It was unfortunate for us because I really feel like we made a record called Face Shifter at the time that um, was us firing on all pistons or whatever. And we were this live as a live act. We were a force to be reckoned with, but we weren't having um, our big chance with the um, industry. You know, people didn't really have an open mind about us at the time because we had the stigma of a band that had been dropped. And so I was in, you know, in America at least. It was just, it was, you know, it just felt like bad timing. All the uh, ducks weren't lined up, and or at least how it was, how things seemed to work at that time, you know. Right. And you know, and I had no idea of like, you know, you can do this on your own. Hey, fuck it, who cares? And DIY it. And I don't think that really was as common of a notion at that time yet. Even though you could. You could. And then, and when I talk to people like Buzz Osborne, it's like, God, I really wish I had had your attitude from day one, you know? Buzz's, Buzz's attitude had always been, when they signed to Atlantic, his attitude was always, I mean, at least how he tells the story now, was, sure, you, you really? You want to sign us? Uh, okay. Great. You know, 
I don't think it's going to work, but go for it, you know? Um, you know, I, I like like I don't know what what's the logic. What's your ambition with this? Does you're expecting this to be huge? You know, we don't expect it to be huge. We're going to do this, but um, you know, and we'll do the work. But but I mean, but but, yeah. but if but if it doesn't go on to be as big as our friends in Nirvana, we're not a failure. We we, we didn't we did not achieve. It seems to me before indie rock was as big as it is now that major labels had bands that comfortably sold seventy five a hundred thousand copies and that was that everyone was, was happy. Yeah, you know, and some people made that into. A huge look at Frank Zappa. Yeah. He would put out four records a year. They'd only sell a hundred thousand, but that's four hundred thousand. So wait, what era was that? That's well, that was all the way back to the seventies. So in the seventies, but by the time you were getting into like the post CD era, when the when the label, you know, when the, that format kind of like took off and the labels became really bloated with all that back catalog cash. Well, that's true, but also you're making a higher <laughs> profit margin on a CD in the CD times, anyways, because you can make stuff so much cheaper. Well, yeah, also yeah, because they. They, they, they suddenly they were bumping up the retail price of a, of a new album went from like nine dollars to fifteen dollars overnight. For something that was cheaper to make. Yeah, and it never it never came down with with no. the uh, with the price uh, with with the manufacturing prices going down. And then on top of that, everybody were led to believe that they needed to like rebuy all their Led Zeppelin. And when the Beatles came out on CD, that was like when it really kind of blew up. It was like, okay, this thing's here to stay. This format's here to stay. And uh, so whatever, it just seemed like the labels were really, they just had so much cash around the time of the late 80s and they were just just putting tons of money into things and just like, just throwing it against the wall and then dumping it because it was like, they controlled the media pipelines and if, if something did hit, it hit huge. You know, it seemed like there was this period there in the late 80s where it was like, how many fucking hair metal bands had at least a gold record? You know, like fucking... Things that he was like, oh, things we've long forgotten about. Long forgotten about would sell like five hundred thousand yeah, records that's true. because um, they could throw so much money at it, and so the stakes had gotten so ridiculously high. If you were out there, but if you know, if you were doing something like Red Cross is doing, like worshiping weird bubblegum records from the late, from the early seventies, it wasn't as easy for them just to slot you into like that. F that format of like okay you know we saw this many Demol's records or whatever it was by getting this one thing to happen you know right and uh, there so, wasn't a gravy train to, to hitch a ride on no yeah no so a lot of my heroes were fucking smart you know people like Mick Jagger really really smart person I think you know I mean like he was no dummy I mean he was uh, I think back who I was who you know I mean, maybe I'm overly impressed with an education, but to hear that he was like a, you know... Economics a, major. An economics major. You know, one of the hardest to get into schools in all of the UK, you know, all the world. And, um, you know, and I'm like this kid, you know, um, just kind of living off of 20 years of pop culture and uh, not particularly like, like uh, I immersed. I think you've done fine. I, I've done fine, but I was thrown into a very... Um, economics an economical situation where I had to understand how to survive in this um, business world without a I don't think that I really had a many tools myself to to, um, to it wasn't natural to me to, to look at the situation and and understand how to analyze it and and make a good decision and we had and we had um, business people around us that um, 
had their own sort of agenda agenda and they're fine and i understand their agenda and i don't hold it against them but it wasn't necessarily that uh you know my goal of just wanting to be able to play music and have security in my life that wasn't really fitting into the picture for them you know and i don't even know if i even knew how to articulate that then but so anyways that's a and i don't think it's I'm a concern s- because i think i think everybody in the industry whether they even are aware of it themselves are kind of geared to this machine-like thought that, okay, here it comes, this is the new kids, this yeah. is working, oh, it's not working so well anymore. All right, well, we'll pass on them now and we'll get the next one. And, but those kids are still like, ah, uh, you know, wait, like they're thrown out into the deep and they go, well, wait, well, now what do we do? Yeah, yeah. We got to like figure it, it out ourselves. It's, it's a really weird, and I think that... Um, it's not talked about that much. No, you know, it's not talked about because I guess instead of like instead of an, it's a it's an unpleasant. It's funny. Josh Hayden was in here and he talked about I would like to see a, a documentary on just all the people I knew that were in the you know late eighties early nineties who got thrown this deal and had all this money. And two years later, they're like nothing and like some of them became homeless and he's just yeah. like going on this whole thing about rags to riches times 10 in reverse you know like yeah. how it affected so many people negatively it's a weird thing especially at that time in the industry because it was like you know like I said there was, there was a lot of money a lot of money floating around and like a lot of people suddenly you had all these best friends all these sure. people the labels they were like your best friend and a lot of you know, people didn't understand that it's like this is a very temporary situation this is very contingent upon how the next six months goes yeah yeah whatever favorite, favorite record all time Oh shit! Uh, I don't know, but I mean, I've been obs- I've been just deeply, deeply. Well, probably I'd have to say um, I'm back on the White Album right now. Wow, that's always been my number one. Yeah, I love that record. Well, the thing that's been really amazing and a real gift for me as a father has been um, my kid discovered the Beatles this year, and pretty much on his own. I mean, from driving him to school, I just had Eleanor. I mean, I had Revolver in the car, but it was a ten minute drive, and I didn't even notice. And then four days later, he started singing um, uh, Eleanor Rigby to me. Wow, of all the ones to zero in on. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was only three songs on the okay. way to school. So song number two, and he just started going, you know, you know, da 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 da. I was like, well, what do you do? And I really was like, all the lonely people. Anyway, so but he seems to have some sort of musical thing, and and we've been listening to the White Album together, and. It's been such such a treat, um, really neat, uh, to un just open that treasure trove. Would with you encourage him. your child to pursue music? Um, well, the thing about it is, is that um, I've uh, from day one I always thought, you know, I just want him to be into whatever he does. You know, like if he's, I mean, maybe he's really idealistic and like a young parent, but before he was born, I would think like, look, if trash collecting is his passion. If he just wants to work for the sanitation department, but he just fucking loves it, then I'm all about it, you know? That's all I really care about is he's passionate about it, that he's got some sense of purpose out of it. But um, I think I'm finally coming around to accepting or admitting that I'm a lifer, you know? I have At this to, point, of course. I have to do it. I get too weird when I'm not doing it. And, um, you know, so whatever, you know, if that's what turns out for him too, well then great, you know, I uh, I would do 100%, um, I'll, I'll encourage it and support it, you know? Um, but it, it's true, definitely like, uh, I can't even remember, what, there was one moment where he did something that showed signs of maybe this is a sign of that he's one of us and I remember just thinking like another one bites the dust <laughs> yeah well <laughs> like fuck worse things could happen yeah yeah you know 
you know, but he could I, be a lawyer. Once again, if sometimes. that's his passion, you know, it'd be like the Godfather. We need, we need, you know, everybody we, needs a concierge. Yeah, we need a good lawyer. To, but anyways, sorry, I answered you. I, such no, a simple you did, question. You did great. It's wonderful, Steve. But we are going to wrap up. It's so much Not fun, much. Bruce. Thanks. I'm glad you dug it. No. Uh, say goodbye, and we'll uh, see you later. Okay. See you guys. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions. Join us for our next podcast when our guest is Janice Garza. She's an author, publisher, and a kitty enthusiast. Meow. <laughs> <laughs>